0: When major emergencies happen, they take to the sky. We count on them to take those in critical condition to the nearest haven and be our eyes in the sky during major disasters. They are the men and women of the Aviation Emergency Services. Life in the EMS SAR community can be very demanding, but one thing's for sure, when in distress, call EMS. All right, fellas, today uh, we have a very special guest. He is our first Patreon to ever be on the show. He was a former uh, Black Hawk crew chief, and he is now working with the emergency medical services. He's been doing that since uh, 2013. Please welcome Fresh. Hey.
1: Welcome, welcome, Frush. Happy to be here. And thank you for being here. Yeah, We're good have you on. Sorry about the little bit of confusion beforehand. Hey, it's what it is.
0: And that's that's how confusion is, you know, like. That's the spice of life. We've got some confusion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's kind of how most of our careers have gone to this point. You just kind of show up and you go, uh, where do I go? And somebody yeah. points you in a direction and you're like, okay. And you walk over there until somebody else points you to go back to where you came from.
2: Right. I've or um, felt
1: like I just look at it and go,
2: huh. Okay.
1: <laughs> there, there it is.
0: <laughs> Cont- contrary to that, you know, when you see like a giant line, you're like, and you just walk over there. Hey, what's this line for it? I don't know. I'm just standing in line. (laughs) Nobody even knows what it's for.
1: Oh man! So, uh, so what got you started? I'm gonna, I'm gonna start off. What what got you started in aviation? Was it uh, when you joined, uh, when you joined the military, or was it uh, even before that?
2: You know, uh, growing up, my father worked on Cobras and Hueys, so I grew up sitting in the back of Hueys as a kiddo, and it was just something I had always wanted to do. Hey, that's, that's, a, that's, those are my babies right there. Um, you're talking my language now. <laughs> yeah. We, my dad was a, uh, a, a National Guard member. So it was the old single engine Cobras and Hueys. That's still good. We got, we got some of those, uh, at the, at the
0: old schoolhouse that used to be where I learned how to do stuff. They had, they did have single engine stuff, but they were so torn to pieces because they want to use them for museums and whatnot. So it wasn't like, it, it like it had the husk of an engine, but it didn't actually do stuff.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh It's sad. Those are such iconic birds. Like right now, where I'm out here, and the area of California I'm in, they have a. Uh, this guy, across the runway here, has a uh, graveyard of Hueys and J models and F model Cobras. Oh man, there. it's just ah, so cool. Totally, I'm gonna go over there and just bask
0: in the, bask in the history. <laughs>
1: totally- so are you are you are you living out here again
2: or are you you back in colorado so i actually live colorado and the company pays for me to commute out here and work oh so you just come out for like a week or so at a time yeah my current schedule is i i come out two weeks and i go home for a week so i work yeah i worked that before it's not too bad at all um it's a little taxing on the family at times but we all we all been there if you do it right you can make it almost like a vacation so before my wife had a career we would hop in the car and road trip it out here since my schedule was kind of like preset it's similar to aog maintenance kind of world but things are a little more planned majority of the time so we would come out here the company would pay me mileage pay for the hotels and the family and i would go sit on the beach depending on where we're at oh that's cool it's a good way
1: to do it so so I have I have no experience in the EMS realm and and I know Six does not either, although he has Hilo experience to which I don't have any. Um so can you explain to us a little bit about the EMS uh EMS side of things?
2: So with the EMS world, especially as a mechanic, you're kind of a jack of all trades. You um you know, as a base mechanic you're assigned to that one base and usually base mechanics kind of live in the local area. And it's, it can be a, a really cool gig, but it can also be a gig where complacency can fall in because you are the only mechanic there. Yes, you have a manager, but half the time, you only know, like talk to him on the phone. You barely ever see him maybe once every three, four months when he comes by and does a base inspection. But it is your job as the mechanic to maintain your tool certs Operation dates to schedule and plan your maintenance to try and reduce out of service time. So you sit there and oftentimes try and use like a, you know, hey, we got a thunderstorm coming in, and we're not going to be able to operate for between these three hours, all this thunderstorms here. Well, cool. If I have a hanger, I'll push in the hangar and I can complete the maintenance then. Um you also have to do there's a little bit of politics, depending on what base you go to, because I mean, let's be honest, you have a bunch of A-type personalities between a pilot, a nurse, a paramedic, so okay. sometimes there can be some drama, and my biggest thing on that is just stay away from the drama. But most of the time, once you get those things down and figured out, you come in, you do your daily pre-flight, you do all your paperwork, and then you know you punch out for the day and go on call. Okay,. Nice. So so are you
1: pretty much on call then? You have your normal set work hours, right? Let's say nine to five. And then after five, you're on call from 5 p.m. till 9 a.m. the next morning? Or is that?
2: So the way it works for me is I'm on call 24-7. So I don't necessarily have like actual set work hours. So like I go in at eight and I usually leave around noon. I go grab lunch and then I'm done for the day. Um, there's maintenance to be done. Sometimes that can go up to, you know, they won't let us work past fourteen hours, but it still requires a bunch of manager approval to get, you know ten hours we have to call our manager, twelve hours we have to do this, and then at fourteen hours, we're done for the day with a mandatory ten hour reset period of no disruption. That's okay. my not all companies necessarily operate that way. but yeah, man, it's uh it's a pretty easy gig. like uh, like I said, I'm on call twenty four seven during my two weeks on. And I go on my one week off and it's no one disturbed. That sounds like AOG maintenance, what I used to do before uh, you and I had worked
1: together in our past life. Um, well,
2: you're you're not wrong, especially in the position that I am in as. So I, uh, I travel as a float. So I go cover guys on their days off. Right. Mm-hmm. So I am attached to my phone and pretty much travel to wherever they need me. So there's been times where it's like, hey, we have an engine change, the helicopter's stuck in the middle of this cornfield. Can you fly out there and help the mechanic knock out that engine change and get the aircraft back in service? So I've had that side. But then there's also the other side where it's uh you know, hey so and so's vacation. We just need you to fill there for seven days and then go to this other base for seven days, cover so and so for his days off. Oh okay. Right on. So I heard you say you
1: had to, you had to track your own calibration, uh, your own tools, your own, do you have like your own van, your own shop
2: van, truck, whatever,
1: once you no. show to, uh or you have to travel with everything?
2: Uh, no, actually. So most of the bases that we have kind of generally have tools set up. So as a, at the base mechanic level, you're kind of, you know, say you're assigned to the, just that one base, right? So you go to the same place. For two weeks, and that's all you do. I mean, you usually live there, right? So it'd be like, say, I live in um, San Francisco. I, my base is in San Francisco. So I go into my base in the morning, do what I gotta do, and then I go back home. But I am responsible for maintaining everything at my base. And my base can be anything from a nice hangar with an office to I've worked out of a 10 by 12 tough shed in the middle of North Dakota, where without insulation. So it's, you got to kind of choose where you go and, you know, you set up your base life uh, and kind of set it up to the way where it works. And you, those, you know, checking your calibrations, making sure you're you're sending tools out for calibration, making sure that, you know, like I said, uh, your stuff's not expired and maintaining your inventory and all that. Jeez. Okay.
0: Can you imagine that dice roll of getting that uh, non-insulated
2: shed in the winter. I can tell you what, I had a call my manager once where I was like, hey, everything in my uh flam locker is frozen. Is this still usable or do I need to toss it and order new stuff? Oh, cheebus. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 that sounds so, miserable. <laughs> so as far as
0: working um in the EMS field, um do you do you guys have to have like any certain qualifications besides being um AMP certified? Like uh do you guys have like, is there a time when you guys have to be flying along with the medics and the, the pilots when they go for a call?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Do you have to have like a basic, uh, what's the stuff we all went through in like SEER school? Oh, uh, uh, survival training? Like survival or field
2: medic stuff, the basic, you know. Not really. So, CPR. <laughs> so it's kind of funny because, uh, all I ever do is I just turn wrenches on it. I'll fly on it when we do like a track and balance or, you know, if there's a maintenance flight that needs to be done, but there's really no uh, specific qualification except for an A&P license. And most companies I think like you to have at least three years prior helicopter experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some companies out there that will take you straight out of AMP school. I will tell you that's uh as a whole different beast in itself especially coming from the military is uh learning to mesh with your medical crews and learning to do all the civilian maintenance stuff too um because we fly under a part 135 operation so mm-hmm. a little more uh regulated by the FAA than you know part 91 or that's not necessarily like a part 145 where like i said you have everyone kind of doing their um, everyone kind of has their assigned tasks and that's all they they really worry about. Okay.
0: So almost every uh, aircraft for EMS is all helicopter related like uh, is there any like where it's like a like a propeller plane or anything like that?
2: Uh there are um there are companies that use like King Air fixed wing King Airs and uh Pilatus PC12s and in fact there's wow. another I have
1: seen the Pilatises before, but those are mostly, that was out of Santa Barbara, and those are mostly organ. Uh, um, They're hauling organs from one site to another for transplant patients and things.
2: I know, uh, Oh, one second! the helicopters are hovering outside my window here. Um, so like with us, with my specific company, we do have a fixed wing where they'll actually fly out to, you know, middle of nowhere, Oregon, or it might just be a dirt strip and pick up a patient because we don't have a helicopter nearby. Or if it's a, uh, you know, a direct kind of deal, of, you know, they're really messed up and we need them at an air's hospital, but we need to get them there fast so we can send a King Air, pick them up and then load them up and fly them out. Whereas the helicopter can do all the same stuff, but the helicopter doesn't necessarily have the same, you know, uh, does have the area. duration time. Yeah. yeah the same distance so okay.
0: uh, so given so given all that right and uh you you kind of touched it a little bit uh what's the like uh the demand like uh how how i would say your up rate like how, how off um how many aircraft do you need to keep up in any given time
2: so with most bases we only have uh one aircraft um current base i'm at now we have we actually have two aircraft But one's set up for search and rescue and the other is set up for just straight EMS. Um, We are usually up, I would say, probably most of the time. Uh, I mean, they don't really, the industry's really gotten away from telling the mechanics of how many missed calls and how our downtime has affected missed calls because uh, they're really trying to get away from putting stress on the mechanics while they're doing maintenance. Right so there used to be a point in time where i would take an aircraft out for you know two three hours and then it would be like hey we had this many missed calls during that time and you know it was one of those things where you get mechanics in the mindset especially guys who came straight out of the military where that's that mentality yeah sure yeah uh, well it's not completely fixed but it's good enough You guys can go back in service we can get you out there that's things that they're trying to get away from nowadays it's all about safety and, and you use those 10% overflies to, for everything. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know but, I mean? yeah, yeah. And they've gotten away from that quite a bit. I mean, there's some companies that I've been to some smaller companies that are kind of more mom and pop that still kind of operate that way because they're, they're trying to break that line of, uh, you know, profit versus loss, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, a lot of the larger companies they've they've gotten away from trying to put stress on the mechanics. A lot of the stress that I see in the EMS industry is actually self-induced. Okay. okay, guys putting pressures on themselves. So, yeah. So you so would you say
1: then the the biggest problem then at this point is the clashing of personalities between aircrew maintenance and then the the medic uh,
2: team. Um. So it's uh that's kind of a case by case ordeal. So like, there's been some helicopter bases i've gone to where it's been a completely totally toxic culture of everyone trying to get ahead of everyone else and everyone getting in everyone else's business and then there's other bases where you have this dream crew of everyone trusts one another and you all you know you show up in the morning they're cooking bacon and eggs and before you know it you're sitting down at breakfast with the crew and everyone's just having a good family breakfast around the table Oh, that's cool so i mean it's but I mean, it is one of those things that I've always been very, for the most part, open and honest with my med crew. But there are some med crew that I've come across or individuals who, if you sit there and be like, Hey, this is broke on the helicopter. It's not going to affect you. Some people get fixated on that one broke thing. And then they start badgering you about it and they start stressing out because, um, they don't necessarily have the same knowledge as the mechanics do on how the aircraft operates. So the big thing with that is just kind of educating your crew on hey, this is how this works and this is how this part plays mm-hmm. into the system and why it's yes, it's broke, but we put it on a deferral and we're going to get it fixed, but it's not going to the airframe structurally in any way shape or form. Right. Or the way so it's just getting that education piece in there is what i find helps a lot with some of that that issue so so
0: now now uh we you guys get the call we need you guys to get out here uh to to this spot to to uh to do xyz um uh what's the the usual uh action from there from the moment you guys get the call
2: so usually um you know when the, the crew gets the call, they'll uh they rush out, they do a quick walk around of the aircraft, they make sure everything's unplugged because we have shore power and uh some other STCs installed that will allow you to uh that charges the medical equipment while it's plugged in on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So they go through, they make sure that everything's removed, all the removed before flight stuff, do a quick walk around, make sure everything's safe, all the clack cal- callings are closed, uh and then you know, your crew does kind of, you know, the post fire guard stand outside and make sure everything's secure while the aircraft runs up, climb in, and then they take off. Is there like, a, like, a, like
0: an average response time that you guys have to be within so far of an emergency in order for you guys to take the call?
2: Um, I don't really know on that aspect. I know uh, most places that I've worked at, the response time's always kind of been around trying to get about eight minutes between the call and taking off but usually like I said when they get the call you get the pilot who sits there and he'll start looking at weather and planning real quick and then you know your par- uh, paramedics and your nurses will sit there and they'll go through and they'll uh, maybe get kind of an idea of what their situation they're getting ready to walk into and if they need any special equipment and whatnot. Do you have to be certified um, to fix any of the like uh, medical
1: equipment on board the Hilo, like medical specific stuff? Maybe, I don't know. Do you have to have like some sort of AED training or I don't know. Can you explain some of the systems maybe that are on board a Hilo for a lot of us that don't know, like myself?
2: (laughs) So a lot of the time, the equipment that we carry is we have a monitor that can monitor like your heart palpations and all that an EKG monitor, basically. Um, we have some infusion pumps and a ventilator. So our med crews are trying to be able to intubate someone, which means if you are having trouble breathing, they can put a tube down your throat and put you on a, a, a ventilator. So that will help you breathe. Um, the paramedic, they're allowed to push drugs. So if they need to sedate you, he can Drugs into your system and get you stabilized. And then the nurse kind of works underneath the direction of a doctor. Now, for equipment wise, most of the stuff that they carry is uh, just like IV infusion pumps and, uh, you know, like I said, ventilators and G monitors to be able to monitor all that stuff. And we have uh, some built in medical oxygen systems that we can uh, tap into so let's say those systems are
1: either one depleted, broke or or outdated and you're replacing it with a newer unit. Are you then the one who has to replace those or do you have to do that in tandem with one of the medical staff? And then because you're the AMP since it's being installed on the airframe, you have to be there to witness it, to sign it off or, or, or what kind of ops checks are involved in that,
2: you know? So a lot of the, the way that a lot of the stuff is set up is it's modular. So, the only thing that we as the aircraft mechanics really have to worry about is the mounting systems that require the 337 since it's a modification of the airframe. So like our our monitors, you know, they, they pull out and they come in. There's a quick disconnect that they can hook in. And so that way we don't really mess with the monitors. That all goes to a separate biomed can manage and maintain that equipment. We, we just get the... Uh, we just deal with the actual mounting equipment that holds that equipment to the airframe. So so just the trays and the
1: racks and the hardware and such? Yeah. Okay. Now, are you, as the, uh, as the lead or the uh, head of maintenance or whatever for that base, are you in charge of scheduling those systems to be clean, controlled, tested, the medic systems? Uh, or is that the medical staff who has to schedule that time and then work with you to set up a time to have those systems look, Oh, you know how like in a hospital, they have the, the different uh, technicians come in from to inspect the CAT scans or whatever
2: machines, you know, MRI stuff. So usually there's someone separately who manages that, um, the medical equipment. So uh, usually what happens is what well, we have a spare that we can put in and they'll pull that unit out and send it in for maintenance. Or we had a third party company that came through a biomed company that's come through and they, stopped by the pad and just inspected the equipment, pulled it off, inspected it as long as someone was there to uh, meet up with them and get them into the airframe and whatnot. Okay. Now now I can imagine like, uh, so uh,
0: when these equipment go in or pre and post flight, um, who, who sterilizes all the equipment? Is it the nurses and the, and the paramedic or do you, are you allowed to help them sterilize all the equipment?
2: Um, so usually that is the nurses and the paramedics responsibility to sterilize. things. Um, that's kind of been a big thing recently with all the current events going on. You know, we've, uh, we, we actually have a whole checklist now that the, uh, med crew has to go through and sign off saying, Hey, we sterilized all this and this, this, and this. Oh, like a daily,
1: a daily thing. Do you have to do that similar for like the cockpit for the flight crew? Cause I know in six and I is, uh past past lives there was checklist where wherever the air crew were at that had to that was a daily cleaning or if multiple crews were going to be in the same area in the same time it was a you know it had to be cleaned in between each crew coming in uh checklist is there is is the same thing then for you guys
2: um so we have a daily checklist that is signed by both the mechanic and the pilot that says we went through and we inspected all these different things. But when it comes to sanitation, there's that's all on the med side where it's like, hey, you know, because usually there's a curtain between the pilot up front and the patient area or the crew area. Okay. Depending on airframe. I mean, if you're flying in a Bell 407, there's not much of a curtain. The patient's feet are literally sitting next to the pilot the entire flight. Um, but. They, they we just have a checklist that they fill out saying that they basically sanitize the airframe before we even start doing maintenance, so it's not oh, okay. a daily thing. It's just usually after they either transfer a known patient that has an issue or before we do maintenance, they're supposed to go through and do all that. Is that all recorded like uh you sign off a piece of paper or a document saying we sanitize this, and it gets filed somewhere. Yes, a lot of the mechanics we actually have a a, a file in our filing cabinet where we'll we can save that but
1: it's also there's not like an actual write up that will go in the logbook or anything stating that you comply not yet. with this step or whatever. Yeah, I have a feeling we that's hope. coming though, right?
2: <laughs> um Maybe someday. Hopefully not. I mean, I hope not it, either. <laughs> it's uh, it's with the FAA, everything. Uh, it's um, it's one of those things where it feels like the paperwork every year the paperwork seems to be get longer and longer and more because of someone screwed up and they just want to be able to make sure they can uh cover for more
0: right which which is why i asked especially nowadays with the virus thing then you know they can turn around and say like oh you guys are the ones who gave me covid because reason x it wasn't the fact that you were at a edc concert or something like that you know
2: oh <laughs> well, that's i think that the burden of proof on that would be on the actual individual making the claim if that sense because i mean that would be right but you know how people are oh i know but i mean that would be a really hard thing to sit there and be like oh yeah i got it here because this this is this, this it would be hard to really substantiate that i would suspect because uh yeah but they'll, but they'll try <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> they'll try
1: um so how many different models models of uh helos do you uh, do you yourself have to work on in the on on the ems side of things
2: so my company has four different models right now they used to have they they used to have bell 407 Mm -hmm. good good airframe but recently they've kind of gone more towards the eurocopter side or airbus i should say not eurocopters Airbus acquired Eurocopter, so it's all Airbus now. So we have four different models of Airbus helicopters that we we operate. We have an EC one hundred and forty-five, uh, an EC one hundred and thirty-five, uh, the AS three hundred and fifty, and the um, EC one hundred and thirty.
1: Okay. Now, uh, out of those four, which ones would you say are probably the the least? Ma- you know, they're What's the most maintenance uh needs the most maintenance and what's needs the least maintenance and what's the easiest to work on and such
2: and that is a a i would say the e c one forty pro five depending on whether it's a newer model or an older model it probably needs the most maintenance because it has an old uh system called vartoms that they use to uh, uh i'll slave the engines i guess it basically it's Predates Fadec, oh my where, God. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's an old system. Then yeah, it's like a Garmin okay. system between the yeah okay, cable-driven like system. Just, yep, and then uh, the newer 145s come with a Fadec, so that whole headache goes out. And uh, the 145 also has like an oil-filled main rotor head and these uh, vibration dampers. Uh balls that spin around on the rotor head
1: so how often do you find those dampeners to be leaking
2: uh me personally not very often okay um we stay pretty well on top of that the uh for those of you who don't necessarily know an ec 145 is it is basically what the army's lakota is oh yeah, Uh, yeah okay the other easiest one i'd have to say or the easiest one some might say it's the a star because, I mean, it's a fairly easy platform to work on. It just has some inspections that are a little more, has some shorter inspection periods. And then my favorite is the EC-135. That can be, the EC-135 has so many integrated avionics in it that can be kind of intimidating if you aren't super savvy with uh, your avionics. So, So with that said, did you have to go to... The each each uh,
1: school for each each airframe and get type rated on the model, and then same thing for the engines installed. Did you have to be type rated on those? So,
2: for some of the accreditation out there, they require the mechanic to be factory school trained on both the airframe and the engines. So, I've been to the Pratt and Whitney school for the engines on the one thirty five, and I've been to the factory schools for. Um. The e c one thirty five and Bell 407. seven and then I've also been to the engine schools for the uh the A stars and whatnot I haven't gotten all the factory schools they kind of break them up you kind of get maybe one or two schools a year kind of keep you enticed and stain
1: That's nice that they actually put you through that because I know a lot of for like corporate jets and stuff man to to get on to one of those factory schools is because they're expensive so most places don't want to pay for you to do that. So, if your outfit's putting you through those schools, that's pretty nice.
2: Yeah. And like I said, that all has to do, depending on a lot of it's driven by the accreditation process. So, you know, we have uh, CAMS or CAMS is the the name of the accreditation. It's, uh, let me think of the name of it here again. It's the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems. So, they try and set kind of a national standard across EMS industries.
1: I see I had n- no idea that something like that even existed. So I'm learning learning see, stuff all over here. the place here. <laughs>
0: same here, you know, especially so for those listeners, you know, you guys want to do something in the MS field, that might be something for y'all to look into on top of getting your AMP license.
1: Now, are the schools where did you have to go? Where are those schools located? They kind of uh all over. Did you have to go to Europe for some of them? Did you have to go to uh Canada for like, like Pratt and Whitney?
2: So most of the schools are kind of done out of Fort Worth, Dallas Fort Worth area. Yep. Up in Grand Prairie. Um when I did my Pratt and Whitney school, it was uh flight safety is the one who Pratt and Whitney does all their their oh, there's
1: stuff school. through. Yeah, I went there as well.
2: So um Airbus is out of Grand Prairie and then Bell's out of what used to be out of Alliance. Oh, interesting. So, so
1: is there any ratings you have to stay on top of like that are annual, uh, that you have to, they're recurrent every year. You got to retest on it to maintain that, uh, that, you know, accreditation to it.
2: No, not really. I mean, the only thing that might even touch that would be an IA certification if you have that, but sure. I don't really, I mean, I'm eligible for my IA, but I've yet to go for it because I just don't really utilize it. So, okay. So then how many,
1: um, how many times have you been spot checked? Do you guys spot check by the FAA or do they come in and do inspections? Um, Is there a, you know, uh, maybe the local FISDO will come out, but is because it's medical transport, is there only certain
2: individuals from the FISDO that are certified to come out and do those? So as a, we are a part 135 operation and uh, you know, through three different uh EMS companies I've worked for, we, I ha, we operate with Bizdo out of Dallas, Oakland, and San Antonio. And usually, you have one guy that's kind of assigned to your uh, your company that oversees it, and he's the one that your company kind of interacts with on a regular basis. But you know, we we always try and keep the aircraft in a position where the FAA the local FISDO can walk up at any point and be like, Hey, let me see your airworthiness certificate or your, you know, your registration. And, you know, playing with the FAA is always a whole different game within itself, especially uh, with the way our helicopters are set up. You know, the FAA is really big with the MVG systems on helicopters. So we have MVG systems and as one of the things that if an FAA inspector shows up and sees it, usually that's one of the very first things that kind of look kind of look for, you know, any of the delaminated thing, uh, filters that might be on top and stuff like that. Now,
1: the- can you explain what an N- NVG system is for uh, maybe some of our listeners who don't know?
2: So the NVG system would be a night vision goggle system so basically it's a bunch of filters that take away the white light and turn everything to a like a blue or a green light because our uh night vision goggles have uh, actual blue light filters in them so it doesn't disturb the goggles and cause a bright light for the uh disrupting the vision i mean the pilot's view might My- now, now,
0: does the FAA, do they uh, inspect the medical equipment, too, or is there, like, a different uh, organization or
2: institution that does those? Um, I mean, they'll come in, they'll look at it, and usually the big thing that the FAA worries about is, hey, can you show me the, the uh, inspection or continued airworthiness inspection? I'm screwing that one up. I'm trying to of the name No <laughs> No problem. Okay. Man. No make, problem. Uh, acronym soup. You know? I know. Right. I, I deal. I used to call on everything by acronyms. and I can't think of, uh, uh, well, the
1: issue is, is when somebody calls you and it says, Hey, what's that stand for? And you go, uh, cause you've been calling it the acronym for so many years. And then when somebody finds it, it says, well, what is that? And you're like, well, hold on a second. You asked me too. Exactly. Fast. Right. It's like its own <laughs> language, you
0: know, like, um, you just start wrapping it off like I have no idea what that means. Like you yeah, need like it, your own little decoder ring to figure it out.
2: <laughs> it's freaking
1: Latin, man. It's it's Latin.
2: It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, man, I can't even think of the instructions for continued airworthiness. So uh so ICAs kind of govern things that are not necessarily um covered by the actual aircraft manufacturer. It might be like an add-on, you know, like that brand new bumper you buy for your Jeep there's a separate manual that tells you how to fix things on that bumper for your, your off wheel Jeep. Gotcha. Um, we have that. on oh, the so it's like, it's like
1: the book. It's like a book for like a component.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like a
1: like back shop would use or something like that.
2: Oh, yeah, kind of, it. sort of. I mean, I it's a, it. it's kind of like a third party component that's been put on the airframe. So, like, sure, yeah, it was airframe. it was a mod that you did, and you installed this component, and you say, "Well, how do I
1: actually fix the component itself?" And it's got its own law it's got its own manual. I get you.
2: Yeah, um, I think uh, in the military we called them AMAMS. Mm. Yes, yes. Oh yeah, AMAMS. There you go. Yeah, let me cross the the realm here. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> Awesome.
0: so uh, So fresh. Um, say uh, I ha- we have a person who's fresh, fresh out of school, whether high school or A&P school. Uh, what would you recommend if he says to you, hey, I want to be a part of EMS?
2: Uh, I would sit there and tell him to look it up online. There's plenty of companies that are hiring and make sure if you get yourself into you know, you can at least get that helicopter experience because you got to get the fundamentals down first, man. Yeah, get into a rotorcraft class. I mean, you, uh, you get into a point where just being exposed to the 135 operation would help a lot, too. Just because, I mean, when you come out of A&P school, I mean, I don't think they necessarily showed you how to track all your calibration and kind of getting all the operations down of how to manage all that stuff you know no definitely corner. not
1: at least the school i went to
2: <laughs> yeah i mean would you guys sit there and take someone straight out of amp school and put them in maintenance control no <laughs> no, no <laughs> i mean you- i mean i've seen i've seen people do it
1: just to
0: get them out of the shop like you worthless tools. go to control I'm like well,
1: yeah you your- do less damage over here but
0: and then control turns around like, here's your broom, here's your pen, it does what, it, it does what it's told. <laughs> yeah.
1: You sit over here and you input this data every day.
2: I mean, that's like my company now has even, my company even has a, a maintenance control operation now. Oh, wow. So like we basically we send them all the documentation and the log a picture of the logbook entry and they kind of review everything and make sure that it meets uh, 439 or 4311 depending on whether it's an inspection or just a common sign off you know it's having all those uh, items that are required for your logbook entry that is another thing I would recommend for AMP mechanics is just kind of be, be knowledgeable of the FARs man i mean I've worked with guys in the past that have gone to 145 operations and in a 145 operation, you don't necessarily always sign off the work. You may sign off a task card, but yeah, out here, everything's covered under that 145. Yep, absolutely. So like out here, you know, you're, you're actually practicing with your AMP license. So you need to make sure that you put that aircraft date, time, and your signature and a brief description of what you did. Oh man, you mean proper documentation? Proper documentation oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we had a, we had a whole episode about that. You probably listened
1: to, but yeah, it's one of those I always tell guys. I said you can never have too much information. I said if you can write it to the point where an FAA inspector can read it and have no questions to ask, you did a good job. And yeah,
2: mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a funny thing there because there's there's two views on that. There's a view of hey, I'm going to be as general as possible because it gives me an area to kind of like, hey, I said, I use this maintenance manual, but I didn't necessarily say which revision. So I, can, you know, go to this revision and then there's some people will sit there and be like, oh, you need to have torque wrench serial number, part serial number, the revision number and all this other stuff all the way down to the chapter. And there's two thoughts on that, because if you keep it very general, if you find yourself sitting in front of a lawyer, because something, God forbid something happened. Yeah you they're going to take a look at your logbook entry and be like, so you said you did this inspection with this chapter, with this revision with, well, did you know there was a new revision that came out two days prior to that, but might not necessarily have gotten pushed out to you right away. Mm. So Uh, now you could sit there and say, Hey, you did this maintenance with an old revision. Got you. Let me, I see what you're you're saying.
1: Um, Yeah, I guess I can see where it's a double edged double-edged sword there but fortunate for me i haven't i haven't been smashed yet so (laughs) by putting putting revision down (laughs) but but also you're hoping you're hoping you're hoping that your your system your company system the qa there is uh on top of that stuff and saying hey there's a new revision out even if it's not pushed to you yet but there's a whole new revision out and uh you can you can just get that stuff done you know what i mean oh yeah like like qa is it will cover you on that instead of so QA trying to smash you, they'll, they they got your back in that instance, hopefully. And
2: good good companies do that. But I mean also as a mechanic, like even if you decide to practice your license out in general aviation outside of a 135 part ninety one or whatever, you need to make sure that you are at least checking those revisions. Right. Most definitely. You
0: know, and then you also don't want to just be so vague, like removed part like Okay, what did you remove and why and where? What's it doing? <laughs> you know, just like yeah, I, yeah, I did it.
1: Like I don't, I don't remove fuel <laughs> control. Why did you remove the fuel control? Oh, <laughs> that's was-
2: that's the other thing. I mean, there's so many. Um, I mean, you've got what all your dirty doesn't. So you have the norm. So like, I've had maintenance control guys sit there and yell at me for not putting a logbook reference in. I'm like, well, technically, if you look at the FARs, all it says is I have to have a description so that someone who does not have the knowledge of the system can understand what I did. Right, yeah. yeah.
0: At, at least that, you know, don't just be like, I took this off, like, why though? <laughs> All right, Any any closing thoughts for us and for the listeners?
2: Hey man, I think what you guys are doing is a great thing. Um, I think it's important to expose the aviation world, especially the maintenance side, because I feel like as maintainers, we often get overlooked. We're the silent professionals, I guess you could say where uh you know they congress and everything will pass things about regulating pilots and crew time but when it comes to the mechanics man those guys they can work all night long and nothing bad's ever gonna happen so i think what you guys are doing is shedding some light on a, uh, a group of individuals who are often overlooked that's the goal of it yep give it give it give credit where credit's due and um uh, if you ever decide to get into EMS, just realize that whenever you go back to a regular 145 or an operation that requires you to be there eight to 10 hours a day, it's going to drive you bonkers because you get so much freedom with your schedule right now. Hard to
1: have that ball and chain tied on you. Oh, I, yeah, I, man. I feel you. I, I understand.
0: <laughs> going, for, going from adulting to having to have someone watch every step of every,
1: every moment of your life. <laughs> uh, closing Thoughts MVP uh fresh it was great to have you on good talking with you again i appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh talk with us a little bit and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon
2: hey anytime
0: all right uh, we we like to thank fresh especially being our first patron being on the show we also like to thank also our, our other patrons like erica Lamont, stephanie boatman mike diltz jenny dignan laura manns and thomas Connolly. you guys have been such Tremendous support to us and helping us be able to make shows like these, bring in patrons like Fresh here and helping Shoreline Love His Life to help us out with doing all the stuff for the show. Uh, please like, subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on our social media at Cancel for Maintenance or Kanks for Maintenance podcast on Instagram. Check out our merch at uh, maintenance.com. We have some giveaways that are going to be coming soon in light of the holidays. Uh, more to follow on that uh, some of them are from uh, aviation tool companies and whatnot and um, if you have some ideas for the show or you'd like to come on the show uh, visit us and cancel send us online and do everything we can to get you and your ideas on the show